I shared with you how I'm kind of changing my pattern a little bit and starting with an image. And so here's the image that I want you to see today. Every one of us is familiar with a variety of instruments that are used on a regular basis to make an assessment of our physical health. I want to suggest to you this morning that the starting point, the starting point for you and I to determine our relationship with God is to conduct a spiritual assessment. There's a passage in one of the intertestamental books titled Ecclesiasticus, or some people know it as Sirach. Uh, many scholars believe it was written about 185 B.C. And here's how it reads. My child, test yourself while you live. See what is bad for you and do not give in to it. For not everything is good for everyone and no one enjoys everything. Now one commentator indicates that these two verses probably refer to eating, especially the problems of overeating or gluttony, which he bases on the more specific instruction given in the verses that follow in that passage. Even if that's the case, the wisdom of that passage is certainly able to be applied to many other areas of life. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 11.28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I shared with you that this use of body is not the person's own physical body. It is a plural. It's talking about the needs of the body of the church. Alright? The need to examine ourselves. Uh, or again, Galatians 6.4 where Paul directs our attention to bearing one another's burdens, especially those who have been caught in a transgression. And notice, he calls for Christians in Galatia, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Or again, first, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you'll find out that we have not failed the test. And the guidance that we were given, or what I referred to you as a pattern for the church that Paul provided as he began 1 Thessalonians, comes with the well-known triad. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those three words appear ten other times in the New Testament, as well as one of the early church fathers by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp wrote a letter to the church at Philippi also. And we have that letter. And in that letter, he is 
obviously talking about uh, Paul's letter to the Christians at Philippi. And he says, Paul, quote, wrote a letter unto you, which, unto the which, if you look diligently, you shall be able to be builded up unto the faith given to you, which is the mother of us all, while hope followeth after, and love goeth before. Love toward God and Christ and toward our neighbor. For if any man be occupied with these, he hath fulfilled the commandment of righteousness. For he that hath love is far from all sin. This triad that Paul introduced obviously became very important to the early church and early Christians in terms of looking at how they were doing. Uh, to express the essence of the reader's experiences as Christians. And I've already shared that he does this by using a verb with each of the nouns. And in this way, he remembers their work that proceeds from faith, their labor that proceeds from love, and their steadfastness that proceeds from their hope. So here's my question for you this morning. When you pause to examine yourself, do you find a faith that functions or just a mental process? Do you find a love that labors or a love that takes the easy way out? Do you find a hope that endures or do you find yourself troubled by doubts and by fears? Are you living a life that's pleasing to God? One that is transformed daily by the renewal of your mind. By the way, the passage I just alluded to is in Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing, there's that word again, by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and purpose. Do you see the pattern in all of these verses that I, I brought your attention to? The importance of each of us doing some self-examination. And, and I think herein is the need. We have the image. Here's the need. How can we expect to live a life that's pleasing to God if we don't really know what the will of God is for our lives? But it's very important for us to realize at the same time that the knowledge of God's will is not just an intellectual exercise. The knowledge comes by means of relationship. Let me give you an example. Doc. That was the affectionate name by which we knew him. It was Jesse's grandfather. And when I went and asked him permission to marry his granddaughter, because he was the patriarch of the family at that point, he told me, he said, well, you know you're, you're taking my housekeeper and she's a good one. Now, I've relayed that information to others, and because of that, other people have taken advantage and hired her to do different housekeeping and cleaning at times. Uh, and 
she enjoys it. She's become very close with uh, Pauline Ekstrom, and she was with Norm and with the family uh, because of going over every other week and cleaning and and. It always takes her longer than than normally because she and Pauline sit there and chat and and but here's my point. We only come to truly know what we've experienced. And those people that I told about her abilities, and even when Doc told me about her abilities, it didn't mean anything until I experienced the fact that she was in fact a good housekeeper. And when I was working full-time teaching and going to school full-time in the evenings and would come home after a long day, even with three preschool kids. That's right, when Autumn was born, Austin was three and Eric was two and we had a newborn. Three kids all under the age of three. I never had to worry about bringing somebody home excitedly, unexpectedly I mean, because even with three preschool kids, the house was always immaculate. But you can't know that just in your head. You have to experience it. It's what Alexander Campbell uh, one of the founders of the Christian churches and Church of Christ, in his paragraphs where he talks about how to interpret the Scriptures, one of his points is that we need to come within hearing distance. I love that phrase. What he's talking about is we have to posture ourselves in relationship to that teaching to truly understand what the message is for us. And as we dig into our text today, we're going to hear Paul encourage the Christians at Thessalonica what to do. In fact, what to do more and more that they, as they received from Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, they were to do what they already knew, he said. And that is how you ought to walk and to please God. So let's go to His Word. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. In his commentary, John Stott notes how with the beginning of chapter 4, we have reached what he refers to as the watershed of this letter. And he goes on to note how there's an abrupt change at the beginning of chapter 4. In chapters 1 to 3, Paul's been looking back to his visit and the events that followed it. And he's been defending himself. 
But now as we move into chapters 4 and 5, we begin to see Him looking to the present and the future of the Thessalonica church. And in doing so, he addresses some very practical problems of Christian conduct, which were evidently troubling them. John Stott was a man of words. I love reading his books and his commentaries. An artist of communication. And I like the way he describes this shift. He writes that Paul turns from narrative to exhortation, from his apologia, the defense, to his appeal from his explanations regarding his own behavior to his instructions regarding theirs. And did you notice how the chapter began? The foundation, the foundation of ethical instruction, the foundation of Paul's instruction as to how we are to behave is the necessity of living in order to please God. Paul's already affirmed his own resolve to please God and not man. He did that back in chapter 2, verse 4. And he does it in his later letters that he'll also write, the pastorals that we're studying on Wednesday nights. Both his ambition for himself as well as his prayer for his friends. And pleasing God is really a good principle for Christian behavior. I agree with those who refer to it as a radical concept. I mean, how can we claim to know, how can we claim to love God if we don't seek to please Him? You see, disobedience is ruled out. Secondly, not only is it a radical concept, but it's a very flexible concept. It will rescue us from the rigidities of legalism, a form of Pharisaism, uh, which tries to reduce morality to a list of do's and don'ts. I grew up in a very legalistic family. Um, and hard to, hard to not want to say and point fingers. But you know, and I know this is rather trite, but I'm going to do it again. I've done it before. When we point our finger at others... Three fingers are pointing back at us. And the real standard is our thumb. God. We need to be very careful about trying to apply lists and do's and don'ts to others. Thirdly, the progressive is really progressive. The principle. Um, if our goal is to be pleasing to God, that means we can never, I'll repeat it, Never. That means we can never get satisfied with the way we are living. <clears throat> I love plants. They're in my office in every place you, almost every place you look. If I see a plant that's not growing, I try to figure out why. Because if a plant is not growing, it's dying. And if you and I are not growing in our faith, if we're not doing better than we did last week or last month or last year, if we're not exceeding where we have been, we're dying. And from that general exhortation to please God, Paul moves on to some very specific ways in which we should do so. And today we're going to examine just the first two. There's actually three. Today we're going to look at sanctification, Self-control in verses 3 to 8, which we read. And then we're going to look at our love for one another in our daily work. 
verses 9 to 12. So again, let's notice how Paul begins his description of how God's will for us is to be sanctified. For this is the will of God. Verse 3 says, your sanctification. Now, it shouldn't surprise us that the apostle begins with human sexuality. Not only is it said to be the most domineering, the most overbearing of all of our human urges, but sexual laxity, even promiscuity, was rampant in the Greco-Roman world. He's writing from Corinth to Thessalonica. And both of those cities were famed for their immorality. In Corinth, Aphrodite, the Greek goddess of sex and beauty, whom the Romans identified with Venus. She sent her servants out to roam the streets by night. Thessalonica, on the other hand, was particularly associated with the worship of deities called the Kabiri, C-A-B-I-R-I. And in those religions, the rites of gross immorality were promoted under the name of religion. And so Paul develops his instruction in verses 3 and 4 in three stages. He begins by making a general and very positive statement that God's will is that you should be sanctified, holy. Now, that word can either refer to a process or, more often, its result, the state of being made holy. But here's what it means. Being different. You and I should not look like, act like, behave like people that are not Christians of the world. We're not, as Paul said in Romans that we already read, we're not to be conformed to the patterns of the world, but we're to be transformed. And I love that word. It's metamorphosized. Our change is to be so different that it is the same word used for an ugly caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. And it's hard work. If you have ever had the opportunity to watch a slow motion video sometime of that butterfly working to get out of that cocoon. And you can't help them because if you do, they don't get the moisture squeezed out of their wings and can never fly. I know from experience. I tried to help one one time. I was careful with a razor blade and I didn't injure it but it was soaking wet and couldn't fly. That squeezing gets that moisture out. Hard work. Secondly, he specifies with God's general and positive will a particular prohibition that you should avoid sexual immorality. J.B. Phillips in his little uh, translation says we're to have a clean cut with impurity. Total abstinence. In fact, I. Howard Marshall in his commentary rightly says, where things are evil, the Christian attitude is necessarily one of abstention and not of moderation. Third, Paul lays down two fundamental, very practical principles to guide his readers. The first half of verse 4 contains the most difficult phrase in this letter. Literally translated, it reads that each of you should learn to acquire his own vessel in holiness and honor. 
This is one of those points, and I'm going to go back. This is one of those points where I disagree with the translation of the English Standard Version. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Uh, This isn't right. Uh, And very seldom do I find myself disagreeing with the ESV. But it's not right because vessel, most of the history of translating and understanding the text, vessel was a metaphor used for wife, not one's own body. And so basically, the Revised Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, both of those have the letter correctly, I think, encouraging the Thessalonian believers to take a wife for himself. In fact, Paul uses norm, uh, the word Paul uses normally there uh, for the verb acquire or get, it actually means to pr- procure for yourself. And you don't have to go out and procure for yourself your own body. You already have it. The Septuagint, the Old Testament translation in Greek, uses that word always, always for the acquiring of a wife. And not only that, Paul's instruction is the positive counterpart to avoiding sexual immorality. And and that's where the contrast is. Do it, go out and pick that mate in holiness and honor. Not in terms of lust that can readily be understood as an alternate view of marriage and not an alternate style of self-control. And then he basically, Scripture, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 2-9, where he basically affirms that since there is so much immorality in the world, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. So marriage is thus portrayed in Scripture, both as a creation ordinance and intended for companionship and, and for bearing children, but also since the fall of man, it's a remedy for sin. Paul stresses that if the heathen behave as they do because they don't know God, verse 5, then Christians must behave in a completely different way because we do know God. And so in this first paragraph, Paul is bringing together God's will, verse 3, God's judgment, verse 6, God's call, verse 7, and the Spirit gift, verse 8. So, if you rearrange those a little bit in theological terms, God's call is to holiness, verse 7. Be holy, He says, as I am holy. His call is, His will is our holiness, verse 3. His Spirit is holy, the Holy Spirit, verse 8. And that's given to all people in order that we too can be holy. And you can find that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. And God's judgment is going to be on all unholiness. Verse 6. Therefore, without holiness, it's impossible to please God. So, setting the issue of sexual immorality aside, 
there are all kinds of things that we can plug in there where we can say God's call is for us to be different and not to get caught up in all of these behaviors that separate us from God and show us to be just like everybody else. Secondly, God's teaching is for us to love one another. Let's read on. Now concerning brotherly love, you have need, no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brotherhood, brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and to be dependent on no one. God's teaching is for us to love one another. And as Paul moves into this section, into this paragraph, it's clear that he is speaking to a group in the, in the Thessalonian church who needed a very different kind of instruction and a different kind of instruction. They're going to be identified, and they are identified in chapter 5, verse 14, as the idlers to whom Paul says they are to be warned rather than helped. The word Paul uses in terms of the idlers originally in classical Greek referred to an army that was in disarray and to undisciplined soldiers who either broke rank instead of marching properly or who were insubordinate. It then became uh, a word used to describe any form of irregular or undisciplined behavior. And then in recent discoveries, by the way, of papyri found in Egypt, dated to the first century, preserved because of the dryness and the sands of Egypt, the word there for idlers, uh, used by even people outside Christianity, had to do with their relationship to work. And its emphasis was not sloth, but rather an irresponsible attitude to the obligation to work. Paul uses the word as an adjective, as an adverb, and as a verb. He uses it four times in this letter to the Thessalonians. And here in chapter 4, verse 11, obviously the same group of people are being referred to. And the context in each case makes it plain that these people had given up their work and needed to be exhorted to go back to it. Paul frames the appeal to them and the problem in general in terms of brotherly love. His argument is pretty plain. That to work for one's own living is a mark of love. Because then we don't need to depend on the support uh, of fellow Christians. And del deliberately giving up work is actually a breach of love because then we become parasites on not only others around us and close to us, but also on the body of Christ. It's only natural that those who know God as their Father should love one another as sisters and brothers in the family. So Paul writes that about brotherly love, 
I don't need to write to you, he says. You yourselves were taught by God. How? Well, the Old Testament is full of passages talking about how to love your family and care for your family and, and even how to care for and treat the sojourner and the alien who comes into your midst. Uh, in fact, Paul goes on and says they had been showing it to all the brothers in Macedonia. Chapter 10, I mean verse 10. And from this very general teaching about love, Paul goes on to the particular manifestation of it which he sees to be missing in the idlers who had given up working. And evidently he has them in mind when he addresses three admonitions to the whole church. The first, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. A striking oxymoron in the Greek. Because in the Greek, it literally says, make it your ambition to have no ambition. Uh, not to be idle. Idleness at the Thessalonians was apparently accompanied by a feverish excitement. And Paul says, no, 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 you dampen that down. Don't be excited about your not your doing. See, here's what they were doing. They were giving up their job because they believed that the Lord was coming right away and they wanted to have, do everything to be ready for that. Much like a group called the Millerites back in the 50s. Gave up all their jobs, sold everything. It, it's happened over and over again in history. The second ambition was, the best way to say it, Mind your own business. And that's a big problem for a lot of people. Paul writes in his second letter, because they were not busy with their own business, they had become busybodies. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Meddling in other people's affairs. Thirdly, he says they were to work with their own hands just as Paul had told them when he was with them. It was the Greeks who despised manual work as degrading to free men and fit only for slaves. Christianity came into direct collision with that view. Paul, the tent maker, reinforced the example of Jesus the carpenter and gave dignity to all honest human labor. And the Apostle had two reasons. First, that their daily life might win the respect of outsiders. How often have you seen somebody who supposedly was a Christian who had become a parasite that people would point their finger and say, that's what Christianity's like. It's not worth it. There's nothing good about it. Second, he says, so that they might not be dependent on anybody. You see that in verse 12? And you also, we also saw it back in chapter 2, verse 9. In fact, again, that little paraphrase kind of that J.B. Phillips did, he referred to work as an honorable independence. And in this way, Paul brings together the two communities to which all Christians belong. The world and the church. Outsiders 
and the Christian brotherhood. And don't think for a minute that people aren't watching. Watching us. I, I hate to use personal illustrations, but some of them are just so charming. Rich had a guy come up to him at work one day and say, you're different. And it was pointing to his Christian style of living. Isn't that a blessing? We're to be different. We're not to look like everybody else. And a true expression of our love is to support others in, who are in need, but it's also an expression of love to be supporting ourselves so as not to be needing support by others. So, here's my close, my challenge. Two questions from these first 12 verses that I think we need to be asking ourselves. And the first is, will my behavior, will my actions be pleasing to God? My daughter's a blessing to me. And recently when I said something, not cussing, but when I said something, she said to me, Dad, do you think that's what Jesus would say? And I said, absolutely. In Matthew, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you vipers, you snakes. But I admitted to her, probably not. Will our actions please God? And will, secondly, our actions involve serving others or demanding to be served? I don't know how it happens. Some point back to the institution of Social Security. I've looked at history and I see indications of it long before that. But we have developed a welfare mentality where people think that they deserve all kinds of things just because they're citizens of the United States of America. I don't understand it. I really don't. Uh, I think anybody that knows me and my family know and they've seen that I will work three jobs at times and I would be out on the street picking up cans before I could take handouts. I just, and, and maybe that's a pride issue, but it's just where I'm at. Will our actions involve serving others or demanding to be served? Let's pray.